as of 2015, according to the World Health Organization, the average life expectancy in the United States of America is right at 79.3 years. Women, you know, you got us beat. I think it's, it's 81.6 for women, 76.9 for men. Um, I will not ask who's on which side of those numbers or anything like that. These are averages. Um, that is a record high for the United States. Um, and that moves us up to 31st in the rankings of all the nations of the world. Japan is, is as usual, number one on that list. The average life expectancy of 83.7. But people, particularly in, in developed nations, are living longer today than, than, than they ever have before. And a lot of that is medical sciences and advances that we see there. That there are, there are some diseases that, that used to be these great killers of population that have virtually been eliminated. I mean, things like tuberculosis and smallpox and, and polio and, and there are others like them. And so this has certainly contributed to that. On the other hand, there are other diseases that are just skyrocketing, like cancer and, and heart disease. And so, but, but the average, we, we are living longer than ever. But no matter how large the life expectancy grows in the United States or any nation of the world, there is one statistic that has not changed with all the advances of medicine and science. And it's the worldwide death rate. Stays where it's always been at 100%. One in one people die. Um, And that has not, will not change. You can walk or run every day for an hour or two a day. You can you can be a gym rat and just just spend hours and hours there working out. You can can have a low fat diet and a low sodium diet. You can you can maybe you need to eat sushi. Maybe that's the secret. Or the Japanese seem to have something figured out. You can you can live the healthiest lifestyle you can and end up being the healthiest corpse that ever did die. I mean, I mean that's the reality. You, there, the grave always wins physically. There's nothing that can be done to ward off yours and my eventual death apart from Christ's return. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying, "Well, I just quit that whole walking and running thing and just start eating what I want." Who cares? We're going to die anyway. That's not the point. But what what motivates us to healthy living is not just trying to stay off death. I hope that's not your motivation. What motivates us as Christians is, is it's a matter of stewardship. And so that, that is a real motivation and one that should, should help us. But in John 11 though, we have this eyewitness account of Jesus just breaking the iron grip that death has and holds. And though Lazarus has been dead for four days, Jesus restores him to life. I know you, if you've, if you've grown up in the church, if you've studied the Bible, you, you know the story of Lazarus, and I know this is familiar, and I pray that God would just kind of dust that familiarity off of your mind, and that, so that we can just behold the wonder of what we see here. Because he, he doesn't use medicine, he doesn't use magic, he just speaks. And Lazarus, whose body hasn't just been lying in some embalmed state or and 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 he's not cryogenic, he's not frozen or anything. His body has been decaying rapidly. 
in that heat of Palestine for four days. And boom, he lives with Jesus' word. And in so doing, Jesus powerfully backs up this astounding claim that he makes. I am the resurrection and the life. And so there are, there, are, there are these three movements as we walk through this story in John 11 this morning, as John tells it. And each movement has to do with a different member of this family. And so we read verses 17 to 27, and the attention is on Martha's interaction with Jesus. Then we'll see Mary's interaction with Jesus. And then obviously Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so let's, let's jump in. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. He said that the Jews, they did, they did not embalm their dead. They, they would wrap them in strips of cloth and, and put perfume and spices under those cloths just to kind of help minimize the, the, the smell and the fragrance of, of, of decomposition. So, so the body would usually be buried the same day that the person died, and that was the case with Lazarus. So he's been in the grave. So Jesus was about a day's journey away. Remember, he stayed two days. He probably, Lazarus probably died right after the messengers went to Jesus. So it's been four days. His body's in the grave. Verse 18, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So his, he, this is not an unimportant detail, that, that Bethany's location and its, its near proximity, close proximity to Jerusalem is important. One, it explains how there were so many mourners there that people that knew this family had come from Jerusalem and these Jews had come there to comfort them. But, but it's also, as we're going to see, it's preparing us for the climax of this gospel account that's going to take place in Jerusalem just a couple weeks from now. And so Jesus performs His greatest sign. Remember, John is recording for us all of these signs that, that, that show and point us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And this, this final great sign that He performs is this raising Lazarus from the dead right in the shadow of the great city Jerusalem. And so, so this is going to explain when we get into John 12, the triumphal entry as we call it, which is really a death march. But you have these crowds of people, these throngs of people lining the road, shouting, Hosanna, oh save! And laying down palm branches and cheering and rejoicing and singing to Jesus. And it's such an ironic scene. But how do you explain those crowds? Well, it's the fact that they, they've just witnessed and heard the stories ran quickly that Christ rose Lazarus from the dead just a couple miles away. So that's why John's giving us this little detail. So verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. You see the distinctive personalities of these two sisters. They, 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 they come out here, they show up, and, and we see it in other passages, but Martha's the active one. She's the get it done lady, and so she goes out and goes to Jesus to meet him. She's the worker. Mary's the contemplative one. She's the one we find sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Him speak and teach. And here she waits for Jesus in the house. But what I want you to see, and this is what uh, you've got to understand is where you're at this morning, is Jesus moves towards these sufferers. He, he enters into their sadness and gloom. He, he, and, and He does the same for us. He's doing that right now. 
I mean, this is God's mercy to you. Whatever sorrows and sadnesses you brought into this room this morning, Jesus is entering into that even as He speaks through His Word. And He shows us Himself. That, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what circumstances you're in today, you can know that the Lord is near, Paul says in Philippians. And, and the Lord who is near to the brokenhearted. And so my prayer this week has been that, that in your sadness, in your in your circumstances that may seem uh, seem hopeless and, and, and frightening and, and scary and just sad, I pray that we would both stand in awe of the glory and power of Jesus Christ and also be overwhelmed by the compassion of Jesus. Both are on full display for us today. So we're gonna we're gonna track. John 11, through this, these kind of three movements. And so, well, Jesus, Martha, Jesus, Mary, Jesus, and Lazarus. So the first thing we see in this encounter with Jesus and Martha that Jesus does, and showing himself as a res- resurrection in the life, is that Jesus shifts the focus. He shifts the focus, Martha's focus. Not away from, as we'll see, a program to a person, himself. And so let's see how it unfolds. Martha goes to meet Jesus on the road, and and. And she says something when she sees Jesus that she's probably uttered over and over again in the last few days. If Jesus had only been here, my brother would not... Where's Jesus? If He was only here, He would have lived. She and Mary and these other mourners had probably said this again because that's what we're going to see. Mary says the same thing. The crowds say the same thing. But verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here... My brother would not have died. If only Jesus was here. And I don't think Martha is rebuking Christ. What are you what are you what were you thinking, Jesus? That's not it. I don't think this is just venting frustration at Christ. I mean, because Mary knew that before word ever reached Jesus about Lazarus' sickness. That Lazarus had already died, so she knew there was no way he could be there. But it's just this, it's just this, this, this cry. I think there's this hint that for, from Martha that her sorrow of her brother's death is intensified by Jesus' absence when he, when she needed him and when he needed him. In a sense, what Mary is saying now is, "Lord, you're too late." You're too late. He's, he's, your greeting isn't a reproach of Jesus, but it's an expression of, of just regret. Resignation. You're too late, Jesus. Her faith is strong. She believed that Jesus could heal her brother if he had been present. Jesus, she, she'd seen him and witnessed him perform other miracles and heal other people. And so she's saying, Lord, I, I wish you could have been here. He wouldn't have died if you were here, but you're too late. And so, so our faith is strong, our confidence in Jesus' power to heal him is, is there. But what Jesus is going to do is going to strengthen her faith even more through this suffering. And isn't God, isn't God like that? Just think in your own life. Isn't that how God has often worked to grow your confidence and dependence upon Him in more ways than He he, he can do in a a moment of suffering or a season of suffering what it takes a lifetime of ease to accomplish? 
God deepens our dependence upon Him through hardships. And this is what we see with Martha. He's strengthening her faith. Verse 22, but now, she says, she goes on, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, I don't think that it crossed Martha's mind that, La- that Jesus might raise Lazarus from the dead. I don't think that's at all what she has in mind. I mean, that's clear from her actions at the tomb. And, you know, don't go in. Don't lift the stone. It's the, the stench. And she has no expectation that Christ will raise him from the dead. I think what she's looking for from Jesus is not, it's not that. I think she's looking for comfort. Comfort for the for the release that God can give to a heart that is crushed by grief. I think it's something like this that that she's anticipating the loneliness and emptiness that's ahead for her and the, the days ahead, and and she's she's hoping for favor, for blessing from God. Jesus, you can, God will give you whatever you ask. Help, help. Even now, Lord, though he's gone, though it's too late for him, help. Verse 23, though Jesus says something to her, your brother will rise again. (laughs) But still, she's not thinking literal bodily resurrection now, in the moment. So she says, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In In the future, that last day of resurrection, yes! God's program, it's going to come to pass. He's, he's going to rise again. But there's nothing that can be done now. That's how she's thinking. Her theology is good, but it's incomplete. She's got this well-formed eschatology, which is a fancy word just for the, uh, our, our study of the last things and the, the end times. She, she has this hope and this expectation that there will be a resurrection in the last day. And there will, brothers and sisters. But her Christology, her study and knowledge of Christ is lacking. And so she, so what is Jesus doing? He's shifting Martha's focus away from a program to a person, to himself. Say, look at me, look to me, depend upon me, believe in me. And this is what he does. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is emphatic here. That little pronoun at the beginning of verse, verse 25. I. He, he's, he's emphasizing. I, Myself, am the resurrection and the life. It's a person. It's Me. This is the fifth of Jesus' great I am statements in the Gospel of John. And so, just as we've said with the others, what Jesus is not saying, He's not just saying something like, I give resurrection in life. Or I will one day resurrect the dead to life. He says, present tense, I am the resurrection and the life. That's who I am. He's shifting her focus to Himself. Brothers and sisters, listen. In our grief, in our sorrows, in our sadness, our faith must be fastened to Christ Himself. God's program for the future and that great day and there's a kingdom to come and and a new heavens and a new earth, all that just 
gives hope to our hearts. And that is good, but ultimately our hope is not in the program, it's in the God who is accomplishing the the program for His eternal purpose. It's in Him. And so Jesus is saying to Martha, God's program will be carried out, but know that whenever I'm involved in a situation, God is at work. (laughs) And and, and listen, Jesus doesn't have to be physically present to be working. The, The Great Commission ends with that wonderful promise. As Jesus sends us out to suffer for the gospel's sake, I am with you always, always, to the end of the age. Jesus is with us by His Holy Spirit. And so, so this, this resurrection, this new life of the coming age, Jesus is saying, it's present right now because I am the resurrection of the life. So verse 25 again, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So he's mentioning two groups here. Those who have already died, believers who have died, will live. And then there's us, those who live. Those who are alive, living believers will, get this, never die. What a, what a statement. And so first, those, what about those who've died, whose bodies are decaying, whose bodies are turning back into dust? We have loved ones and relatives and sons and daughters and parents in that category and grandparents. And What about them? This is a word of hope left to those who are behind. Whoever, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. D.L. Moody, in a sermon referencing this passage, he said, One day you will hear that D.L. Moody of Northfield, Massachusetts is dead. Don't you believe it. In that day I will be more alive than I have ever been before. And that's, that's the hope that Christ is offering. That's what he's saying. Though he dies, if he believes in me, he lives. And then there's the second group. And everyone who lives... And believes in me shall never die. That's us. We're not, we're not dead. Our hearts haven't stopped beating. So what about our future? If you believe in Christ, you will never, ever, ever die. And the, and the Greek phrasing here is very strong. It's something like, he will never, ever die forever. And so we will pass from the scene. Yes. We will, we will go through what to all appearances looks like death. Yes. Our, our bodies may break down and that process of, of dying may be painful and excruciating and ugly until we breathe our last breath. Yes. But there will be no death for the believer in this sense. There will be no darkness. There will be no loneliness. There will be no separation. There will be no limitation of our faculties where we'll just kind of just cease to be functioning. No. We pass immediately into life. <laughs> there won't be a, a single nanosecond. I don't know what's smaller than a nanosecond. I'm not that smart. But the smallest way, measurement of time that we've come up with, there won't be that little bit of death for the soul of the believer. Body dies, soul with the Lord. Instantaneously. There's, 
There, there's, there's zero delay. There's not some, like you have to be rebooted for uh, this new life. It is just instant. This is why Paul says of death, he talks, looks at it right in the face and says, in view of the resurrection of Christ, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for those who believe and who live, they'll never die. And two times though, Jesus states that condition. That is true for those who believe. Those who believe. I want you to hear me. Listen to me. There, I say this with, without, in all seriousness and without, I hope, is any hint of sarcasm or any kind of self-righteous pride. But Scripture holds out no hope beyond the grave for those who do not believe in Jesus. There is only separation and darkness and eternal anguish for the souls of those who do not trust in Christ. If you refuse His offer of grace, if you, if you do not trust personally in Christ as your Savior, there is nothing but hell ahead and there's only one so there's only one way through death but there is a way through death and that way is open to all and it's through Jesus Christ whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and the one who believes in me who lives and believes in me shall never die that's the promise of the gospel in the simplest and most well-known verse. I would just state it this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. This is John 11 informs us what He means by that. Should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? You know that life. If you have not today, do it. Trust Him right now. Pray to Him. Confess that you are a sinner. You need forgiveness. You need life that He can alone can give through His dying in your place and resurrection from the dead. You trust Him now. And if you want to talk with me or someone else, do so later. So Martha, Martha does believe. She believes and she responds with this wonderful confession of faith in Christ. She doesn't understand what Jesus is going to do with Lazarus. She still doesn't get it. It's not because she knows, oh, you're going to raise him from the dead, so then, therefore, I make this confession. She has no clue what's coming with Lazarus. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she knows who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Martha. He's directing her focus from what she thinks should happen and how things should unfold and how God should work. And she's saying, Martha, trust me. Trust me. Focus on me. And this is what she does. And so she says this, yes, Lord. I know, not, I believe what you're going, I believe that you are. You are three things. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, which means He's deity Himself, God Himself. And you are the one who is coming into the world. The one the prophets foretold. I believe you, Jesus. I'm focusing on you. Who you are. Who you claim to be. 
I just say to you, does your, does your focus this morning need to be shifted to the person, shifted back to the person of Jesus Christ today? Should, I mean, Martha was a believer in Jesus already. She was already a disciple of Christ. But you can see this tendency, even for the believer, to, to lose our focus and to shift it to other things. Good things, but not Christ. And so do you need that? Do you, do you need to, to, to no longer trust in what you think God needs to do or, or what He will do or how you think He should act and how He will come through for you in and, and your particular situations instead just to say, Lord, I know who you are and I trust you. I trust you. That's a, that's a hard thing, but it's a freeing thing to get there. Second thing Jesus, as the resurrection and the life does, is he sympathizes with sufferers. He sympathizes with sufferers. And we see this through his interaction with Mary. So verse 28, when she had said this, made this confession, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So her sudden exit uh, causes the crowd of Jewish mourners to follow her, because they think she's going to the tomb, she's going to weep, they're going, they want to console her, so they're going, they think they're going with her to the tomb. So this private encounter and time that Jesus intended to have with Mary, it doesn't ever happen. There's a crowd that comes with her. Verse 32, Now when Mary had come, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Sound familiar? Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. Same greeting as Martha, but it's a different posture. It's different, it's different air, different atmosphere here. Mary's weeping. And there's a crowd of people weeping with her and around her. When Martha came, she's, she's, she's grieving, but she's more resigned. She's, she's, it's different. Martha's faith needed to be stretched and redirected. But, and, and that's what Jesus focused on. But when Mary comes, she's just devastated. Completely overwhelmed by her feelings. Her heart is broken. And she's just laid bare before the Lord. And so she's just, she's just torn up in grief over the loss of her dear brother. And so Jesus' reaction here, notice, it's very significant. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now it's very difficult, this is one of those, I don't like to do this, but it's difficult to capture in English what the Greek words here are really communicating. He says, deeply moved in his spirit. That The word there is it's to groan. It's almost always in the context of anger. It was The Greeks used it, just to give you a little word picture, they used it of a horse that's kind of snorting in anger or frustration. So what's, what's being described here is this, this indignation it's welling up in Jesus. He's groaning. He's, he's just moved in his spirit. And then he says that he's, he was also greatly troubled. 
We're agitated or stirred. This is, remember back in, in John 5 when at the healing of the pool of Bethesda when the water, when they thought the, the waters would be stirred up. That's when that would, everybody tried to dump, jump in the pool real quick and maybe the first one in could be healed. And so that's what's, that's the same word here. Just stirred and, and agitated. And so Jesus' indignation and and being moved in his spirit, it shows up in his countenance and how he looks and how he acts. So he's, he's moved, he's troubled. And so the question is, what or who is Jesus angry at? What, what, why is he so agitated? You know, some say it's Mary and Martha and the, and the mourners because of their unbelief and they're masking them, maybe challenging Jesus with the question that they keep coming at him. Others say that he's angry at, at these, that this kind of, this, that there were these professional mourners that had been paid and they're this kind of artificial, hypocritical wailing there to quite quote, console the family. I, I, I don't think so. I, I, it doesn't seem to fit the context. That seems foreign to the context. I think it's something much deeper here. It, it, Jesus is angry, I believe, at what sin has done in the world. That he created. He's, he's indignant over the ravages of sin and the great enemy death that's just laid out there before him through the tears of these people. He's troubled by this conflict over sin and death and the devil. This is, he's, he's indignant over this. And it's intensified, I think, by his nearness to the cross, which again is just days away. He's, he's here and, and the, this climax of His incarnation is coming. This, this, this moment, this great moment in salvation history. And so, so death and sorrow and the ravages of sin, it, it just magnifies, this scene just magnifies His mission to defeat death with His death. And so there's this, this focus of Christ and it, it's just coming to this culmination as He sees this scene and what, what has happened. He's indignant. He's troubled. I mean, this is the kind of anger, uh, just to try to get a sense of this. This is the anger. I, there was a story that broke last week in, 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 our, in, in Atlanta. There was a, a mother and her boyfriend who beat their eight-month-old daughter to death with a belt. Cracked ribs, crushed skull. And you just see that and just think... This indignation arises in you. I remember when, when my mom was fighting pancreatic cancer and we were at MD Anderson and, and sitting in that clinic when, in this waiting room with dozens of other pancreatic cancer patients and all of them just waiting to die. You know, many of them jaundice and just bright yellow, just frail and sickly. And I just remember thinking and saying at times, I hate cancer. I hate this disease. I, I hate, I hate, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be like this. And, and, and I've thought the same thing as I watched some of you battle this awful disease and you've had family members that have suffered and died from it. And, and so we, what we're saying is I, I hate what sin has done to this world that God made. It's just not supposed to be like this. I mean, the barber's great niece, and just to, to read these prayer requests and to think of this family who's grieving. Is she still on life support, Nancy? 
So she, okay, so she's, she's with the Lord, this little three-year-old girl, Natalie, and parents and siblings and aunts, great aunt and uncle and family friends just grieving. It's just, it's just not the world that, this is not the world as God created it. And I think that's something of what Jesus feels, but to a far greater extreme. We're just scratching the surface. We think, oh, well, we really feel this thing. Jesus felt it far more than we ever will. He, he, he feels death more than we feel death in this sense and the brokenness that it represents. He is without sin. He is, he is holy. He is the, he is, he knows what life was like before death. He's eternally existed. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He's the author of life, the sustainer of life, the redeemer of life. And so he feels it. And so he's angry that the liar, the murderer, the one who seeks to kill and destroy, that he has struck again. What this represents. And he's angry. So verse 34, and that indignation, he says, where have they laid him? He's almost... Just think about that. I was thinking about this. It's almost, it's not just like, it's like Jesus is just, just trying to show death that he's Lord in this scene. Where have they laid him? I'm angry. And they said to him, Lord, I don't mean it was impulsive, but I mean in the purpose of God. It's just a preview. They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have the shortest verse in all scripture. Jesus wept. He wept. This isn't the same word that is used to describe uh, Mary's and the Jews weeping. That was more of a wailing, just this loud wailing. This word simply means, but he broke into tears. Tears streamed down his face. That's the word. He really wept. He really cried. He shed real tears as he walked to the tomb. And I think... I don't know. I mean, I don't want to speculate what the emotional feel of Jesus was here, but I would just say his emotions were deep and they were complex, not simple. And so while he's walking to the tomb, he's just overwhelmed with grief and it shows up visibly. And so the Jews watching him said, see how he loved him, loved Lazarus. Now, I do think they misunderstood Jesus' tears here. Now, Jesus did love Lazarus. That's been made explicitly clear. But that's not ultimately why he's weeping. I think it has more to do with his indignation. He knows that he's on the way to raise the dead. He knows that in just a little bit, this weeping crowd is going to be turned into this rejoicing crowd. So he knows what's coming. He, he knows that Mary and Martha are going to soon have their brother back and are going to hold him in his arms. So I don't think it's just Lazarus' physical death. That's not it. I, I think it's just, again, him weeping over the tragedy of sin and the way that it affects humanity even though. I think there is this sympathy here. It's over the sad condition of these people that he loves, the effect that this death has on them, this reality of death. And so he's sharing in their heartache. He's entering into their pain. He's weeping. And so without rebuke, without Reservations, Jesus meets, notice, He meets each sister where she's at here. That's, one, is, one is standing, 
running to him, one is prostrate at his feet. Two different, two different people, two different responses, but Jesus meets him. Martha needs this kind of theological assurance. She needs, she needs, she needs that. Mary needs emotional support. She's just sorrowful. Martha needs to know that Jesus is in control. Mary needs to know that Jesus really cares. As we sang earlier, He cares. He, Jesus cares. He cares for you. This is what Mary needed. And I, I just say, He does the same for us. He knows each one of us. We're not, he doesn't treat us generically. He, he, he knows us. He formed us. He, and he, he meets us. He, he helps us where we need help. And, and He comes and He enters into our sorrow. He, listen to this. He enters into the sorrow, into our sorrow that He could have prevented. Now that may sound harsh to you. That every sorrow you're going through right now, Jesus could have stopped. You realize that? But He didn't. That, that it shouldn't make us bitter or resentful. What we're saying is that, is, is that Jesus is... He, he has a purpose. He has a work. He's, everything He does is for us. That's one of the things that's repeated throughout this scene in John 11. He, everything He does is for us. It doesn't feel like it's for us, but it's for us. And so, it's for His glory, and that's the greatest way that it's for us, is that He reveals more of Himself to us, even through and in these sufferings in ways we wouldn't see it otherwise. And so He's not, he's not stoic. He's not impassable. He's, he's, he, he enters in. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 53. So verse 36, the Jews said, see how He loved Him. But some of them said, could, he not have, could, could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And this is where I say, yes, He could. He could have. He could have prevented this grief. But he, he can do even greater works than healing. That's what Jesus is showing. There's more. There's more. You don't see it. But trust me. So that's the last little movement in here. Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus supplies life to the dead. This is the highlight of the story here. Verse 38. And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So, so this side of the the tomb, it brings the same response back to Jesus that He had in Bethany, or outside of Bethany really. He's disturbed. He's indignant. Death! Sin! Satan! He's hot. And it was, it was a cave and a stone lay against us. This is a very dramatic scene and I want you to see this. And so verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, I can understand how Mary felt right here. I mean, you, I don't just mean in the, just the smells, and I'm not trying to be gross, but with all the misery, why open the grave? Why let the stench out? Why, why make us face the decomposing body of our brother that we love, that we're grieving for? Why, why make us do this, Jesus? Four days of decomposition, you can just imagine what the smell would be like with the sights. It's just awful. But Martha, she doesn't understand what Christ wants to do. 
And again, notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke her, but he, he does encourage her. He's again, he's shifting her focus again. Just reminding her. Isn't the Lord patient with us? It's not like we learn the lesson and then we're good for the rest of our lives. He's just told her this, but says, remember what I said. She said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Said, trust me. Trust me. We need encouragements like this often, don't we? It was Jesus' word. Remember what I said. Remember my word. And it's, 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 we need the God, the God's word to steady us. We need it to, to hold us, keep us upright. This is what Martha needed. So he strengthens Martha, and he turns to do this incredible sign. So verse 41, so they took away the stone. Just don't think that they're thinking, oh, yes, no. It's just, it's just as, it's just rubbing salt in open wounds. It's just, it's just added grief. That's how they're experiencing this. There's no hope. It's just gasp. And Jesus, though, <laughs> he lifted up his eyes and said, I, I was just, I don't know. This is pastoral speculation here. I don't think that Jesus is saying what he says from here on in some kind of stern you know, Charlton Heston kind of voice where, you know, just this, Father, I thank you that you have, I think, I think his, I think his countenance probably changes here. And the tears, the weeping gives way to brightness in his eyes as he prays and looks to the Father, lifts his eyes to heaven. Father, it's thankfulness. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. There's vindication here. Your glory is going to show forth. So he wants him to see that God the Father is involved with him in this, that he's sent from the Father, that he's not just some self-made wonder worker, some traveling magician. No, he is sent by God to do the Father's will, and, and God is with him. And so you, you imagine this scene. Again, brightness in his eyes countenance changes and when he said these things he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come out (laughs) three words no no incantations no hocus pocus Lazarus come out and, the, and, and he's not crying with a loud voice for Lazarus. It's not because his head's so wrapped up he can't hear. It has nothing to do with anything. This is for everybody else there. I mean, Jesus has already raised people with just speaking a word. And it's for, it's for us. It's for them. It's so that we would know that his voice summons the dead. And his voice does just that. Verse 44, the man who had died came out. <laughs> Life returns to his body. What a sight that must have been. Mm. We don't know how. <laughs> we, no one can explain this. We just think it, all that decomposition reversed. He wasn't coming out looking all mangled and disgusting. But but the on as these onlookers they they observe no doubt breathlessly this figure appear at the door of this tomb at the entrance of this tomb. 
His hands and feet bound with linen strips. His face wrapped with a cloth. He's still wrapped up, probably staggering around. I saw my youngest daughter try to, wanted me to wrap her as tight as I could in a towel yesterday after she swam. And she's just, you know, trying to walk around like this. I mean, I almost kind of picture Lazarus like that, just trying to stagger around. And it's this crazy sight. I'm guessing that while they, they're celebrating Lazarus' resurrection, I, I almost feel like they're probably starting to plan another person's funeral from all those that had heart attacks right there on the scene. But uh, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He's, he's alive. And the funeral instantly becomes a party. <laughs> all the sadness is gone. Weeping, tears of sorrow turn to tears of joy as they hug and dance with their brother. And... Give glory to God. So, what, is, what does this say to us this morning? What, is, what, does this, what does this mean for you and I sitting here 2,000 years later? I was thinking, of, we, we were in 2 Timothy this summer on Sunday nights. Frank um, guided us through the book of 2 Timothy. and I don't, This is a somewhat personal application, but I hope that it just kind of, you, you, you'll see it as well. But it's 2 Timothy, it's Paul's writing to Timothy, this young pastor in this, that he's left in this pagan city of Ephesus to shepherd the flock there. And he, and he has to struggle with, to live as a Christian in this polluted pagan environment. And, I mean, we have our own version of that in our day. I mean, it's the, we, we don't live in a culture that's, really inclined to God. And so he's sometimes discouraged, that's clear in this letter. He's, he's, he feels defeated, he, he's facing all kinds of problems. And, and so he's, he's afraid, he's a timid guy. He's, he's afraid at times, he's frail of health. He's got, got it's hard, it's hard. So how does, how does Paul encourage him? What does Paul say to him? To sustain him. And it comes in chapter 2 as Paul's just kind of acknowledging how difficult his life and ministry is. It comes in verse 8 of chapter 2. He simply says this to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. Remember Christ. Remember Christ is with you. You... You will go back to problems this week. Sorry to break it to you, but it's going to happen. This afternoon, maybe even. There, there are situations that you expect because you left them, and there were problems last week, and there are going to be problems this week. There will be other things that you don't anticipate that are going to happen this week. At, at work, at home, in school, in personal life, there are, there are going to be hard things. And there are some of you that are struggling in enormous ways right now. We as elders were meeting before the service weeping together and praying for one another with some things that some of the men are going through. And so, so, so we, some of you will struggle to avoid temptation. Some of you will, will, will struggle to overcome some kind of bitter spirit and, and, and resentment and anger that's, that's just ever-present in your heart. Some of you will feel lonely. And this, you'll, you'll be discouraged. You'll feel cheated in life. I, I don't know what all the situations and circumstances you're going to walk into, but how are you going to face those problems? You gotta remember Jesus Christ. Remember the one who is with you. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the Lord of glory. He knows how to handle whatever situation you're in. He, he, he knows how to lead you through it if necessary, how to raise the dead, how to lay aside the laws of nature to help you. He can do it. He is able. 
But, but the, the focus doesn't need to be on how we think He should, needs to do it and what we think He should do. Our focus needs to be squarely on Him. Lord, I trust You. I remember You. And, and so I want you to remember this scene. I want you to remember Jesus Christ. Not remember my quotes or some stupid joke I told or some the outline of the sermon. I don't care about that. I want you to remember Christ. Remember Him. Not, not just the solution of the problem, not just the potential or eventual outcome of the problems you're facing, but you focus on the one who can help you right now. You just laser focus your faith on Him. This is where John wants us to look. To look at Jesus. Jesus is, not just will be the resurrection of life, He is the resurrection of life in life right now. And He brings joy. He brings resurrection life into your afflictions. Just as He did here. Now this event is this marvelous picture of God bringing, of God's Son bringing life to dead people. <laughs> he's, still, he's still doing this. He's still doing this. He's still speaking and calling spiritually dead people to life. And for so many of you, He's done that. And you, you've been born again to this living hope. You believed in Jesus Christ and you have new life in Him. Others of you, maybe you've not yet believed. And again, I urge you to do so today. Eric's going to speak next week. I'd asked him to do this some time ago. In Ephesians 2, 8-10 to 10 there. And he's gonna, we're going to see the, how this, and it's, and, and it's connected to John 11 here. How this scene of resurrection and life, how it's a picture of what Christ does for the the one who trusts in Him. And so, we'll get to behold it in great splendor next week. Let's pray now. Father, I pray that uh, You would help us, Lord, to remember Jesus this week. We can be so forgetful. James warns us of this. We... We can be forgetful hearers, but I pray that we would be effectual doers in the sense, not just of we're busy with activity, but we're, we're actively remembering Christ, trusting in Him, growing in dependence upon Him. Help us not to forget tomorrow or this afternoon or when we're in the car going home for lunch, what we've heard, but in all of our sorrows, may, may we find You Um, may we remember that you indeed are the resurrection and the life. You live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.